0: Clearly, they've, there's been a great stall in any political reform. And so the, the question becomes, can the government resist political reform? Will it eventually hurt the development of the country?
1: Hi, this is CTV ChinaCast, a production of China I am Wunan and today I'm presenting a phone conversation with Jim Yardley, the New York Times China correspondent based in Beijing. Yardley has been writing for the New York Times for nine years, and he's been in China for over three years. In our podcast, Yardley will talk about his impressive first experience in China when he got in the White Mask SARS period in 2003. Then he'll introduce the biggest story he has covered each year in China. From the Chinese urban and rural changes to the severe environmental issues, especially he took a six-week trip, this year to track the Yellow River and see the vast conflicts between the economic development and the damage to Chinese traditions and the environment in this area. More than this, he'll speak of the stories he did about China's legal system with another New York Times reporter, Joseph Ken, and the article won the year 2005 Pulitzer Prize. When did you come to Beijing, and what's your first impression?
0: actually i'd never been to china before i got this job and i was very interested in china because it was a great story you know there was so much change going on here and there was it was obviously such an important place and had such a large role in the future of of the world really and i just thought it was a great story and and the the enormous social change underway was interesting to watch and so i i did a little bit of language training in the united states and i came over I believe it was March or April of 2003 to look for a place to live, and by complete coincidence, it was the week of SARS. Right. And my second day was the day that they had the big press conference. And I remember when I arrived, maybe 10% of the people were wearing masks. And when I left, I'd say everyone was. And there was everyone was sort of in a state of panic because they didn't really know what was going on. And they were also. Angry because they re- the government had admitted that it had lied, you know that initially it said Beijing did not have a SARS problem, and when in fact that it did. It was a very interesting, first time to be here, and, uh, and you know it was there, the whole city was sort of tense. And then I eventually moved here with my family in August of two thousand and three, and by then SARS was not really a problem. And um, it was just very you know to move here as a newcomer was exciting and a little overwhelming. You know, you move to a a different country and a different culture. You're trying to uh, get a sense of things. But I have now lived here long enough that it feels like my my home It's where I live. (laughs) My children all think they're Chinese. Well, my third child was born here, and my second child is four, and he um, spent almost all of his life here. And then my daughter is seven, and they all speak much better Chinese than I do. They're uh, very funny little kids. They'll be devastated when we have to move one day.
1: How did the New York Times set up its office here?
0: We have two people here in Beijing. We have Joe Kahn, who is the bureau chief, and we have myself. And then we have two people in Shanghai. We have Howard French, and we have David Barboza. And then we have uh, a person in Hong Kong, uh, Keith Bradshaw. And so that's actually a lot. I mean, China's obviously got over 1.3 billion people. So you know, that's not nearly enough people to cover China. But for an American publication, it's actually quite a lot, and we have to we sort of share who gets to do what. So, um, China sort of presents interesting challenges for a reporter because it is uh, it doesn't have what we would classically define as, as breaking news. In, if you're in the Middle East, there's there's bombings and violence and daily occurrences that we we have to write about or there are elections and, you know, the the political process is more open, and so we spend a lot of time covering that. In China, the political process is almost completely closed, and uh, the sort of, you know, demonstrations that do happen are usually out in rural areas and hard to predict when they'll see. So what we would classically define as breaking news doesn't happen as much here, and yet China is inherently... uh, one of the most important stories in the world and it's changing every day. So we have to figure out ways to cover it. And and one of the things that we've done, Joe and I've done, is try to take a thematic approach. We figured it's such a big story that we wanted to look at what we thought were some of the fundamental issues and domestic issues and affecting China.
1: Can you talk about in each year, what was the biggest story you covered and how?
0: the first year, in 2004, Joe and I did an eight-part series about inequality, and in particular, the difference in life between rural and urban. And it was sort of an examination of where Chinese society was a quarter century after reform and opening, and it basically just showed how rural people, particularly peasants, were really falling behind compared to what was going on in the cities, and we looked at it from a lot of different uh, perspectives, and then the the following year we did a series on the legal system and rule of law. we called it rule by law actually because at how um, the rights of individuals and the rights that they don 't have inside the legal system here in china and It was a way to sort of examine since we 'd written about inequality a year before by looking at people 's legal rights, you sort of see that sometimes inequality is created in the system itself. Um, but it was an interesting way to look at society because legal issues are increasingly important here. Uh, the government has made it a point that to, to talk about rule of law, to talk about its need for a good, strong, uh, fair legal system. It wants it wants people to believe in the legal system because it's a way to arbitrate disputes and uh, it's a way to give a sense of... Uh, legitimacy. And so it creates a puzzle for the government, though, because in order to have a sort of independent legal system, you have to have more political checks and balances and a, a more autonomous court system. And and uh, they, the government is often reluctant to do certain steps that would give the system more autonomy. Certainly there has been a great deal of reform. And Chinese legal reformers should get a lot of credit. They're doing really hard work, um, but the system has a long way to go.
1: What about the year 2006? Do you have any big story?
0: I focused a lot on the environment, which is a big problem here. I spent about six weeks this summer traveling almost the entire length of the Yellow River. I started up in Qinghai province at about 5,000 meters and these two ancient lakes that are sort of the source of the river, and I followed it through Gansu and Ningxia mm-hmm. and Inner Mongolia, then Shanxi and Shanxi, and then down uh, through Henan into Shandong. And we just sort of, along the way, we, uh, I traveled with a couple of other people. We just saw the, the tremendous pressures bearing down on China. Um, you know, China is such a big place, and it needs so many resources and and I think the outside world looks at China and it's both sort of sees it as a real potential business opportunity to do deals, but also as sort of a rising threat that they need so much oil and they need so much concrete and they need so much everything. And, you know, well, how will that impact the rest of the world? And so usually the way people look at China is, what does its appetites mean to, the, to our country or to any country? Mm-hmm. But if you travel the river, what you sort of see is all the tremendous pressures bearing down on China. I mean, they have a, a really difficult task that they're trying to accomplish. You know, they have certain people. I literally started the trip with nomads living in tents, and I ended up with a lady in a high rise apartment with a flat screen television and a laptop computer. And it just shows you that, you know, the different levels of development that exist in the country. It's uh, mm-hmm. really quite remarkable. I mean, it's you, there's so much. You can be in one place, you can be in the 21st century, and in another place, you can be in the 16th century. It's uh, such a fast place.
1: One article you did about China legal system in 2005 won the Pulitzer Prize. Can you talk about this article?
0: I think the reason that the legal issues have become So important here is because society is changing dramatically. It's moved from a planned economy to more of a market-driven economy. You have, you know, an expanding private enterprise here and, you know, you just have so much going on. You need rules that are reliable that people can depend upon and laws. And business wants to have sort of a fair legal system that when disputes arise, it can get sort of just treatment. And individuals want, you know, to be able to, I mean, people now are being, there's a huge real estate boom in the country and people are buying apartments, but they want to know that they're sort of, they have legal protection. And so they look to a legal system and the government encourages this because they want people to believe in the legal system because more and more people in China are conscious that they have rights they have constitutional rights. And the divide between what rights they actually have and what rights they think they have is kind of an interesting one. But this question over legal rights and individual rights rooted in the law is is pretty fundamental here. And uh, it rises out of uh, all of the the development that's been going on in the country. If if they don't set up a coherent legal system, it will be very difficult for the development of the country to continue because affluence, to some degree, depends on a reliable set of laws and rules to, that everyone abides by. And, but then the, the key point is, as of yet, the government still seems to largely be above, I mean, the, the Communist Party, actually, not the government, but the Communist Party uh, is largely above the law. And that is, uh, that's that's a fundamental in the U.S. and in other countries, The sort of law is, is preeminent. Uh, but here, the party is preeminent.
1: So, what do you try to tell us from this article?
0: Well, we just wanted to explore the, the mm-hmm. legal system um, and what where where it stood and how it was being used. And we we mostly did it in criminal cases, although we did a few other examples. Mike Joe wrote a story about a businessman. You know, he'd gotten into a business dispute and uh, been arrested. You know, but by, but not so much by the police, but by the other company. And it was just sort of a a, a window and the risks you can take um, in business. I, I did a piece about the environment and how environmental law in China, new environmental laws, calls for public hearings on big projects, big water projects and dam projects, and how officials had, had not yet done that and, uh, and the efforts of NGOs and others to force the government to you know, abide by its own laws. And so you know that that the law is the centerpiece of of social change in China, I mean because uh people try to use the law to expand individual rights or to you know restrain further restrain the power of government. same's true in America you know it's just uh here the setting is different but um so uh we 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 wanted to explore that. We also have a, had a situation here where our one of our researchers had, was put in prison. And we sort of had, were seeing firsthand the legal system. And so we felt that it was a, a very significant journalistic a subject to look at journalistically. So that was also motivated us.
1: Do you think that one day China would also change from law by rule to rule of law?
0: I think there are plenty of people here that want something like that. China's is evolving. And uh, I think anyone who was here 10 years ago and came today would probably be amazed at how different it is in some ways. Um, I mean, I think China's social and economic opening has been remarkable. And, and, you know, I'm sure for individual people, I'm sure that your life was very different from your father's. And, you know, you're probably your father tells you, I mean, I guess he came of age during the cultural revolution to some degree. And, (laughs) can you imagine how different that would have been? And um, and so, you know, that change is pretty remarkable. Having said that, um, clearly they've, there's been a great stall in any political reform. And so the, the question becomes, can the government resist political reform? Will it eventually hurt the development of the country, the economic development, the social development? Can, the, can that sort of this current, development continue without political change and political reform more open uh, openness and transparency I'm not saying a mirror image of the US which certainly has its political strengths and but also its problems these days I mean no no system is perfect but um, you know that's that'll be the question because uh, there's always been this belief in the West that if you open you know if you engage China and you open it up and you push more open economics and social the political openness and change will follow and as of right now we don't know it's hard to know if that argument still holds we'll see but i mean clearly there is a i think there is a great appetite uh, for people for more transparency in in government and more openness and you can see it in lots of small ways here the um the people who who want you know, as they get more invested, they have their homeowners. They want more fairness. They feel like, you know, there's a great frustration here on the part of the public on the corruption issue. And the government has talked about it and tries to do something about it. But essentially, I think many people just, because often local government officials can operate with little, little oversight, that the people feel like they just sort of, officials can do whatever they want but there's frustration about that. So then the question becomes how do you how do you systemically correct those problems? Um, through political reform, political change, and that's what they're dealing with. Now the answer has been sort of they've sort of sought to internally do it and um but the question is will ultimately they need to change something. Um, you know, that's the that'll be the the great debate. I don't think any major change will happen before the Olympics because I think they're very nervous about doing anything that would uh, potentially create instability but you know once the Olympics have passed and there will be a new uh, I think well before the Olympics but there will be sort of Hu Jintao will probably be completely solidified and they'll have a new standing committee in 2007 so it'll be interesting to see what happens after that if they if there's going to be any any moves towards political reform after the Olympics.
1: Thanks a lot Jim Yardley. You've been listening to the CDT China Cast. I'm Wu Nan and thanks for listening.